Hello and welcome to the Curious Life podcast. My name is Yana Firestone. Today I have the absolute honour and pleasure of talking with one of my favourite Australian writers, Jessie Cole. Jessie, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I am thrilled to be talking with you today because your memoir, Staying, was one of the most incredible books I've read in years. And in it, you write about your childhood and family and the inexplicable loss of your sister to suicide at the age of 18, followed by your father's spiral into grief-induced depression and mania, culminating in his own suicide six years later. And despite these tragedies, in the centre of it all is your experience And remarkably, you're actually able to describe your childhood and experiences through the eyes of a child without muddying the lens with an adult perspective. So how were you actually able to do that? Because it's so easy to just kind of rewrite things from your current perspective. Yeah, I think it's actually to do with the way that I started writing. And that was through a therapeutic process that I'd accidentally mm-hmm. happened into. So I, st- I had really, really chronic headaches and I'd started seeing this Alexander practitioner for my headache. And, um, mm-hmm. and the Alexander technique involves like getting up on a table and the person sort of like manipulating your body in a really mild kind of way and giving you sort of verbal instructions. But it seemed to be that like certain areas of pain in my body were kind of storing certain memories or something like that. And so when I was up on her table and she would sort of talk to me, she would often say, oh, like I can I can feel it's really tight here or there's something going on here. What are you thinking about? And it's like it would have, there would be like a particular memory in that sort of part of my body. And she would mm-hmm. ask me to describe it. And mm-hmm. they were just really, really immediate. And often from really early childhood, these memories. And so when I started writing, I started writing as part of that process, as in she sort of encouraged me to just write things down that that was sometimes helpful. And so a lot of the time I was capturing these very immediate and very child sort of orientated or child perspective type memories and um Mm -hmm. and they were and they were just very rich they were almost as though they were sort of yeah just incredibly fully formed in my in my mind and I had an incredible access to them and that was also you know not as far after the events as it is now um, you know, I was probably about 26 when yeah. I first started seeing that therapist. So that wasn't that, you know, the memories weren't mm-hmm. as old either. And so I just think I was yeah. lucky in that way. So when I first wrote the first draft of that book, I was much younger. I was much closer to that age. And I was doing this process, which seemed to be sort of unearthing a lot of these memories as part of the process. And so it didn't seem difficult. It just seemed really natural. Wow. Well, they say when creativity is working, it just kind of flows and it just happens. And yeah. maybe Maybe you were just kind of ready to start unleashing all of that. Well, and I don't think I'd ever been listened to in that way either. So Mm. that was a real revelation for me to be so hurt um, and to have a space that was, you know, where my voice was so welcome. And so, you know, I just, I guess I just found I had a lot to say. You know, I guess I'd always been like an incredibly sort of talkative child and stuff but you know because of what had happened a lot of those like a lot of my 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 capacity to speak had been sort of inhibited so there was that going on too Mm. well it's interesting actually because your father was a psychiatrist and obviously your mum spent the entirety of their relationship 
living with a psychiatrist. So it's interesting that after losing your sister and, and then your dad, that the instinct wasn't to put you into therapy. Yeah, I'll definitely. Yeah, I know. I, I think about that a lot. It's it. I think it was that partly like, I, you know, if you if you have lived with a with a therapist or, you know, you know how, I don't know how, like, we just didn't really trust the process. So, I mean, I only came to therapy mm. through having physical ailments, like, you know, yeah. So it was very accidental for me. And once I'd, once I'd gotten there, I realised how badly I'd needed it, but I'd didn't really know how to find the right person. I mean, I had had a couple of those. I had a couple of those at counselling which were really bad, you know, like where where the person, and I think this is actually quite common for people where they might, if their story is bad enough, their therapist can't handle it. (laughs) So, you know, that's a really horrible experience to have where you know you have this bad story and you go somewhere and, like, I mean, I went to see a counsellor after my dad died and and he just was, I felt he was terrified of me and he kept looking at his watch and, you know, it was all sorts of stuff like that. And I just like never, never went back. And I remember my mum going to see a therapist and she said to her, that is the worst story I've ever heard. <laughs> I was like, what? Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. So I think that, you know, yeah. no, <laughs> I just, you and you know, I mean, also it's subjective. Like everyone, maybe someone would feel validated by hearing that, but my mum didn't feel validated. So it's, yeah, it's just really hard. And so much of good therapy is about finding the right fit. And I guess it's like any relationship. You got to find the right person that, that, just works and it's really tricky if you've got a really big story behind you because to find the person you're going to have to retell that story and if it's a bad fit that's such an emotional like it's such a um an onerous kind of task to share your big terrible history with someone who then Mm. can you know like so i mean i still i still struggle with that absolutely today it's like had you know the energy investment involved in finding the right therapist is just sometimes overwhelming for me you know yeah 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 I don't think you're alone I think that's a common experience for people and in my other life as a therapist I'm often encouraging people if it doesn't feel like it's the right fit you just you know you don't have to continue with that person and you just try and find the next person because as hard as it is to retell the story and relive all of that trauma when it works it's really and I suppose I was just so lucky with this woman because you know I didn't go to her for counseling I didn't know she was a counselor but she is she's incredibly talented at what she does and she's yeah she's just gifted and and she was so perfect for me in that part of my life and it was just pure luck yeah absolutely you actually write so exquisitely about trauma and loss. It's very matter of fact without being overly emotive. But for anyone that's been through loss, in my mind, it's a perfect representation of that haze and confusion and pain you go through when you lose someone suddenly. But there's also such a clarity throughout it. And I wonder how were you able to write so cleanly about your experiences? Or is that just because we saw the final draft and maybe the earlier yeah. drafts, I don't know, were a what bit What my text did, which, I, well, yeah, the, the early, it took me 15 years or something, so it's a really long time. And the earlier drafts were, mm-hmm. the middle centre of the book was pretty much as it was in a, in the earliest draft, so where all the 
sort of big events happen was very unchanged. But what it Mm -hmm. used to be in the earlier drafts was an incredibly experiential text. So I wasn't trying to make any sweeping statements about what grief was like. I was simply trying to give anyone who read it an an experiential sort of way of imagining what what that would be like so and the problem with that I think was that it didn't have it didn't Mm. have enough I wasn't making any points if that if that makes sense I was just like I remember my agent saying what are you trying to do here and I was just like it's I just want someone to come with me on this journey and it was almost yeah. like that there wasn't enough yeah. reason for the for the reader to do that. So it took me a really long a really long time, and I actually think staying has quite a small mm-hmm. amount of this anyway, but a really long time to build up to having anything explicitly to say about the process rather than just showing you this is what happened, you know. And I found those bits the hardest to write. Mm-hmm. I think it's because yeah. trauma and grief and stuff is an experience of losing clarity, you know, that um, there's something about what happens in your brain that you, you can't, yeah. um, you know, memories are laid down differently, everything feels foggy, you can't quite understand mm-hmm. what's happening, cognition is mm-hmm. impacted, you know, that sort of thing. So it just took me a really, really long time yeah. to find the kind of clarity that the text needed to bring it to that sort of stage. So, yeah, it definitely yeah. was, a was a I think, just a, a matter of time and a long time, which is, you know, we, we wish it was easier, but it's yeah. just really hard to work with that unclear inside our mind yeah well I mean but I think you did such a beautiful job of just telling the story and you know there are so many writers that struggle with that and look to color the pages with very emotive language and you know you sort of didn't let the emotion drown out the words the story was very clear and the feelings were clear and the experience was clear without I guess labouring the point. Yeah, I guess that that's sense. just always that's that's always going to be a difficult balance to strike, isn't it? I think. I mean, I think it's partly that you know, as I, mm. I, I partly that I always just sort of imagined that I was really just telling this story for myself or for my immediate family, and so in yeah. a sense, you're not trying to convince those people because they mm-hmm. sort of know already. So maybe you're not having to to labour to convince anybody in that situation. Mm. I mean, when I initially started writing, I imagined that what I was doing was I was writing a text that when because I started writing when my kids were six and four, around that around that age, and I imagined that I was writing mm. a text that once they were adults would explain to them everything that had happened in a way that I would never be able to explain to them in a conversation. You know, like I knew that what had happened to me was so mm. difficult to comprehend, um, especially as a child, that you would actually need to read a whole book, you know. And yeah. I knew that in their minds, yeah. like I, I, I worried that in their minds that I would seem endlessly mysterious, the way that traumatised people often do because they've got sort of so much pain mm. and no way to express it. And yeah. so they, I just worried that they looked at me like a, I didn't make any sense. And so, yeah, in a sense it was it, the text was attempting to just show them, you know, this is what happened. So coming from that point of view as well, you know, you're not trying to win it, win anyone over to your point of view in a sense. You just, I was just trying to share with them in particular. Yeah, well, what an incredible gift Kid, to them. Yeah, but neither of them have read it yet. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. So, so it, it's, it's honestly so funny. So they took their, their 21 and 19 and like they're just, you know, just not really that interested. So maybe I've got to wait for them to be 
be 45 and 43 <laughs> something like that yeah exactly and maybe when their parents themselves you know they'll connect to your story and your experience in a yeah. different way and maybe that'll be the time that they sort of feel the need to understand you in a yeah maybe that's true too way. but the other thing I think I hadn't really thought about but I I'm just thinking now is that I think when they were six and four and you know when I was first writing and it seemed that I would never find a language to have those kind of conversations with them because I was so frozen and they were so little but I think what's actually probably happened is that as they've grown mm. my my capacity to speak and their capacity to hear has evolved and so they probably know the story in far more detail than I ever expected them to just through conversations. So in a sense I was maybe not even like, you know, maybe I didn't even need to worry about that as much as I thought I did. And and it might be through the writing. Yeah, that's such a great point. You know, it might be through the writing that I became able, like I found a language to tell my children these stories rather than have to wait for them to read it. That might be true too. But I definitely don't feel at all that my kids at the age they are now think of me as mysterious and don't understand where I came from. Like that's definitely been kind of cleared. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think the fact that they haven't read it probably speaks volumes to that. Yeah, I think so. So much of your work, and I should say you you actually released two fiction or two books of fiction before Stain came out, and much of your work in across all of your writing features that incredibly rich landscape that you grew up in. For those that don't know, you were raised in the hinterland of northern New South Wales, sort of close to Byron Bay. Is that right? Yeah, it's about 40 minutes, 40 minutes north, but in the hinterland, not on the coast. Yeah, okay. And the land and the landscape is almost like a character in your writing itself. So why is it that your home is such a place of comfort and inspiration for you? I mean, it's it's sometimes it's hard for me to know because this is all I've known. I've lived in this I've lived on the, in this mm. same piece of land in the same house almost all of my life. So it it is just it is just, you know, simply it's sort of everything in that way but um and you know anyone who has been here will also know it's incredibly beautiful country it's incredibly lush incredibly green everything grows at this crazy rate it's it's sort of supernatural feeling in a sense but for me the main Mm. thing was that through the experience of what happened in my family my my what I ended up feeling was that the land the country was sort of the most stable sort of part of my life Mm. and so mm, my attachment to it in that way is really strong you know I I see it as I mean and and it's a kind of contradiction because country and landscape or whatever is, is always in a state of flux it's always shifting it's never the same so it's not stable in that way it's not it's not un- unchanging. It's just that it's, you know, it's sort of it has been here for me in a way that I ha- that I haven't experienced necessarily um, as strongly from you know the world mm. of people. So yeah, I guess I just was my attachment yeah. to it was strong in in a, in a very particular kind of way, and still is, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I mean, you. It's interesting you say that because even though you experienced incredible trauma in that exact place that you're talking about that brings you that security and stability, you know, some people might not have been able to return to that feeling of safety as Mm. you have after going through what you did at that time. But 
amazingly that it has stayed such a, a stable force yeah, in your life. Yeah, I know. And I and I and I I definitely sort of honor that that isn't possible for everybody. I mean for a multitude of reasons, but it's definitely been the way it is for me. Mm. Yeah. And I mean part of that I suppose is the, yeah. the the degree of kind of connection and knowledge and that we had as children the way that we were raised, you know, so that we we kind of the way that we related to the nature around us was very you know it, they, it felt like relationships that we were having it didn't feel just like we live on this piece of land you know mm. it sort of felt like the creeks and the trees and the they were sort of they were in they were entities in our world and that we felt a kind of I, well, I say we I, I, I am always doing that me and my brother I mean but I, I feel like at least I sort of experienced mm those entities as as being quite reciprocating in their affections for us which I know is sort of like a childlike view in Mm. one way but it's it it sort of has sustained me there's a real gentleness in that sort of relationship still for me you know yeah yeah well I was going to ask you know does your brother have any of the same kind of feelings about your home and and the area I think he's probably a lot more conflicted and I'm not sure if that's just simply because he's been gone for so long so that when he mm-hmm. comes back what he's he's much more sort of assaulted by the past i think but for me because mm-hmm. my life as i've lived it is sort of i almost see it like i've relayed a whole lot of memories you know on top of the memories that were already there so you know when i'm here mm-hmm. i'm not i don't i'm not sort of catapulted directly back to the most traumatic parts of my life I have all these other things that have happened in the same spaces on top of those traumatic events whereas I think perhaps for him it's more difficult to come back here and not just be kind of yeah really assault assaulted by the past Mm. yeah I can understand that it's almost like the the more distance you have from the traumatic event it if you've if like you say you've been relaying these memories in the same place it must almost become just part of the story instead of a lived experience as you're walking through the same places yeah, yeah, on the property. Definitely. Yeah, and you know, every time you every time you rewalk a path, you know, you're doing it afresh and that's a new memory. Whereas, yeah, if you haven't had the opportunity to do that yeah. or you haven't been able to or you haven't wanted to or whatever, then you yeah, the way memory works is gonna be you go you're going to be coming up against those really strong and sort of primal responses it's it's quite common I mean not so much anymore but for for you know my dad's been dead now a long time but you know in probably you know for the decade at least Mm -hmm. after he died when old friends would come to visit here post his death you know even years and years afterwards they would kind of meet us at the door and be completely over overwhelmed by the sensation of walking into the past and by his presence mm. and the fact that he wasn't there and you know so we would open the door and they would already be crying kind of thing so it was like no one could come here without having that yeah. experience of yeah of of walking back in time and an experience of sort of re-experiencing the loss of what had happened mm. here but for us of course that doesn't that is not happening anymore yeah you know? yeah yeah which is a, a, a beautiful thing that you're able to enjoy the place and and have all these beautiful new memories in a place that also holds yeah, so much of yeah, the I mean, past. not that I would expect anyone to experiment with such things, but it, it's an interesting experiment, isn't it, And in terms of our capacity <laughs> as humans to sort yeah. of to be resilient in that way. Yeah, absolutely. The theme of loss 
in particularly in staying is so profound not only the shocking losses of your sister and your father in a relatively close period of time but also the loss of relationship with your father in Mm. the years that he was unwell following your sister's death and you sort of talked about needing him to be there for you after being a pillar of stability in your childhood so there's the physical loss of two close family members the loss of relationship, the loss of community after the death of your father and I guess for a time the loss of self. So there's just so many layers to your story and I think you did an excellent job of, I don't don't want to say ordering them, but it was just very clear to me how many layers there were to those losses. I mean, were you experiencing all of that as you were writing Um, it? Yeah, I think think that the the process of, for me, the process of writing that first draft early, early on was really liberating and really beautiful. And even though the content was incredibly sad, there was something about the process of communicating it for that first time that felt really, I didn't feel tra- trapped or like I was reliving things. I felt more like I was getting stuff off my chest and it was really mm-hmm. helpful. But doing all those redrafts in all those years mm-hmm. definitely and, you know, as as I said before, like all those elements became clearer and clearer as the time went by. So I was gaining more and more clarity about them. But mm-hmm. in terms of re-experiencing them when I was writing, that was definitely also happening and, and it was definitely quite painful and quite difficult and not something that I would, mm. you know, required a great deal of recuperation from and stuff. You know, like, so I would only be able to do sort of redrafting periods in really short sort of periods of time and then I would need a huge amount of time for recuperation. And then, like I'm talking, you know, six months or something. So, like, that's partly why it took so long because each time I would have another go, I would be so impacted by that that I would need to recover. And, you know, it just, yeah, definitely, Mm. definitely like quite a re-traumatising experience. Yeah. And almost, you know, going through that therapeutic process again of unpacking everything and processing it and then putting it somewhere and then and also, doing it all um, again. And also I think that sort of thing of what you were talking about of finding clarity or, or you know, managing to um, convey clarity is, is partly what's so trauma- traumatic is that you don't have that. So the constant, the constant attempts to do that and sort of failing were very painful also. So it's it's quite interesting now, now that it's a book and it's published and it and it reads as such yeah. a clear um thing. That has is really helpful because it it was sort of like mm. putting that to bed in a way, you know. That process I mean, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like you've done the work now. You've done the work. Yeah. Emotionally. And that part of your life you've reached a I've reached a kind of clarity around and it's recorded in that particular way so that even if I forget it, I can reread it. <laughs> and um, yeah. I will I will be enlightened again as to the clarity I found at that point, you know. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah. That's, really, that's really helpful. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, grief is such a complex beast and particularly when you lose a parent or a sibling and, and tragically in your case it's both, but it, it creates a sort of a space for loss that can never really be filled up by anything else. And although they say that time heals all wounds, it's not exactly true when it comes to loss. It's more that you learn to live with it rather than it ever really going away. So, I mean, I guess following on from what you were saying about kind of finding a space for 
you know, your understanding of what you went through. Where are you at in terms of generally understanding grief um, and loss? I don't know. I, I wonder whether it's like you can never really go back to the extremity of how you felt in those early years in some ways. So, you know, I've been quite surprised. A friend of mine, um, my best friend recently lost a sibling in really tragic circumstances and I've been quite shocked by my, in a sense, I've been where she is and I know and recognise it. And, you know, we're quite similar in personality as well. So, you know, we have quite similar responses to what's gone on. But at the same time, mm-hmm. it's like I can't really even quite put myself, I can't have, the, I can't even quite remember with the degree of detail that I would like to mm. what it feels like to be her. So it's, it, it, that's really interesting to me yeah. in that I, so, I sort of think that until you've really lost someone in that way, you can't really, you can't, it's, it's almost like becoming a parent. Like you can't know mm-hmm. what being a parent is like until you do. You can have, you know, you can try and you can have your best, guess and you can really spend time thinking about it but it's not going to be the same as experiencing it and so Mm. I guess I've been quite shocked watching her the degree to which I suppose what I'm trying to say is the degree to which I'm now so removed from her experience that it's hard for me to even Mm. understand it in some ways and that's like a sign to me of well you know how much time has passed but also how much more whole I feel than I did back then in terms of the loss so I do I do Mm. agree with you that you know the loss remains and it can never be filled but I do think that the degree of becoming I suppose acclimatized to living without that person or really Mm. does change with time but you know I I think it always takes longer than anyone ever thinks I mean I I always think about this in you know in decades rather than years I remember someone you know there's all these ideas about the first year after one year you will feel this and after and I'm always like Mm -hmm. times that timeline by 10 you know so you know I mean my dad died in 1996 so that's a long time ago now and even in the, you know, like I'm, what yeah. I'm trying to say is that the the second decade feels a lot different to me to the first decade. Oh, I could I couldn't yeah. agree more. You know, I lost my mum uh, sixteen years ago now, and I remember saying to people, it was like the first ten years. After ten years, I sort of felt like I'd come to a place where I wasn't so ravaged mm. by it in a sort of persistent way I sort of got to the other side it felt like after 10 years and although there's there's certainly still times where the grief is very raw and real and particularly in becoming a parent you know Mm. it changes the things that you're thinking about and the things that you're feeling when you've lost a parent but it the grief itself is very different Mm. I I agree in the second decade. I'm moving into my third decade and so I definitely Mm -hmm. feel really differently now to to how I did Mm. in that in that first decade. Yeah thank god. Yeah I know I know. But, I mean, I think our culture is incredibly, incredibly lacking in its understanding of how long these processes take and how difficult mm. they are and how, I mean, I feel like there's this kind of basic sort of opinion that if you're still feeling a lot of grief after six months, then mm. what's wrong with you? Yeah. And that's just yeah. that's just impo- impossible not to, to not yeah. be really. So, yeah, I just feel like the timelines are monumentally out, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, I think unless you've been through it, you can't really understand what that is as a lived experience. No, yeah. Mm.
Uh, one of the other concepts that I think about in terms of my own loss is sort of a, a sense of anxiety about approaching the time where she's been dead longer than, yeah. you know, she's been gone from my life yeah. longer than she was in it and wondering what that's going to be like. And I think yeah. you, you crossed that line with your sister a while back. Um, yeah. And did you notice any major transition for you? Was that something that was noticeable for you? I definitely, definitely relate to what you're saying. I definitely really remember it and remember feeling like it was strange and feeling discomforted by it. Mm. And, um, yeah, so I, I definitely know what you mean. And, you know, for my sister, because she was 18 when she died mm-hmm. and for, I mean, like I was 12. So for a long time, 18 to me actually seemed quite old. Yeah. Um, Like it seemed like you're an adult and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so what strikes me, of course, with her, the older I become, the more young that seems. Mm. And the more of her life, I'm always coming to terms with how much of her life she missed. Mm. Um, And 18 is such a terribly, or can be for some people, such a terribly confusing and fraught Mm. and difficult time to be alive. And, Mm. you know, the concept of if she just made it over that terrible, like adolescence is just so hard, you know. And how much sort of wonderfulness she missed out on by by never really truly becoming an adult, you know. Yeah. Um. And yeah. And and I mean that's just more and more striking the more time goes on. Mm. I think in terms of and and yeah and and also like you know that whole thing of the way that my sister as a living being kind of impacted on my life as a child because she was such a forceful sort of personality and our dynamic was quite difficult and stuff. Mm. So, you know, also that this person that was sort of really in the scheme of a whole life only there for such a brief time but could mm-hmm. have had so much impact, you yeah. know, like that's that I, that's something I think about a lot as well. And, of course, mm-hmm. the longer that she's been gone, of course, the longer she's been, like it's almost as though she never was, like the, yeah. the memory of her or becomes less and less. And especially because she lived pre-internet, mm. you know, the, the sort of what would you, what do you call that, the footprint, the online yeah. footprint or whatever is, is zero. Yeah. Um, and I've had some really gorgeous experiences post getting the book published where um, people who knew her when she was alive, even if it was sort of just briefly, have, have gotten in touch and told me things and stuff. And I have had this kind of realisation that she's not forgotten the way that I assume she was. I had someone oh, um, message me the other day and they had been her pen pal. Oh, wow. When they were like 13. Really? And, and they had kept all the letters that she'd written. Oh. And I was just so amazed because they were, they were like, there were lots of them and they were from a 13-year-old and they were so just like oh. just this, this this footprint of her having been wow. there, you know. That's um, special. But, yeah, so I, I have this thing where my, my dad died, I think he was about 54. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he was in his sort of early 50s. And I have, I sort of feel, and I know a lot of people, I think I experience this type of thing where they feel I get quite freaked about people getting older than 60. I feel like that's they're in danger once they're that old. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of, I'm anxious about that age, you know. Mm. Well, I mean. Even though my dad died from his own hand, yeah. you know, so he wasn't. It's still somehow symbolic for me of once you get past this age, now you're no longer in safe territory. Absolutely. Which is strange. Yeah. No, I don't think it's strange at all. I remember reading something about Lisa Marie Presley talking about approaching the age that her dad Elvis died at 42 and what that was like for her to reach 42 and then get beyond 
that age and it's mm. exactly what you talk about you look mm. back and you, you actually can't believe how young the person was where for so long that age seemed completely grown up and almost like a complete life yeah yeah and I mean it's it's it, it sort of gets even more startling at this age so I'm 41 mm-hmm. and you know I still feel like I'm on the verge of adulthood yeah you know yeah and I and it's such a startling kind of <laughs> idea to imagine you know that maybe my dad felt like that at 54 yeah <laughs> like do any of us actually ever feel like we've so, solidly crossed that yeah. you know divide yeah between. yeah Well, you're not alone. I was talking to a 73-year-old the other day about this exact concept, you know, saying I still feel like I'm, you know, I'm in my late 30s, but I I still feel like I'm in my late teens, early 20s. And he said that he feels about 30. So I I think that's a Mm. common experience that we sort of never, maybe we never really get past what was, I don't know, the feeling of our, the peak of our youth. I don't know. Yeah, I know. I mean, I don't have that kind of, I prefer the the age that I'm at now in terms of, you know, I, f- I feel much better in myself yeah. than I did when I was younger. But I still don't feel that sense of sort of having arrived at adulthood, you know, yeah. even though I have adult children. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a great quote. I can't remember who said it, but it's um, something like youth is wasted on the young. I know. It's yeah. so true. I mean, if only we could go back with the wisdom and experience we have now and, geez, we would have made the most of our 20s. <laughs> Now, your writing, as we can see from what we're talking about here, you share so much of your personal life in your writing and in the generous way that you give in interviews and across the media. So what would you say to writers who might be wondering about how to find that line in terms of sharing personal anecdotes or very personal stories and I guess crossing over into too much sharing yeah I would probably not want to put myself forward as a expert on that (laughs) I feel like I just I'm always oversharing and I think I guess I would try to I, I try to protect people who aren't making those decisions as in my children or my friends or whatever you know they're not choosing to stand up and talk about their lives so mm-hmm. I don't feel like I have any authority really to do that on their behalf mm-hmm. but I think I probably still make mistakes because I'm impulsive in that way but I think for me it's quite different in that I don't, I know this might sound silly because I'm a published author, but I don't really feel like I have a public, a public self that mm-hmm. I need to be private about to protect this public self, you know, mm-hmm. because I live in, in the forest and I don't actually leave home that much. And so it's really hard for me to think I better be careful about what I say because it'll matter in the outside world Yeah, uh, yeah. because the outside world doesn't really exist for me. And so I think it's easier for me to think that that's not an issue and I don't tend to worry about it so much. Whereas I recognise that if you were a person who was writing personal things and publish them but also trying to hold down a a particular kind of job where you needed to have a certain kind of authority or respect or something then that would be different for you you know so Mm. for me I tend to try to be as honest as I can without crossing lines for other Mm. people but I think I think I probably fail quite a bit I don't know (laughs) I just (laughs) yeah well I guess but also I I do feel really strongly that you know a lot of the reason we're often keeping things to ourselves is because we're either 
Well, we're either protecting our own image or we're protecting somebody else's. And mm. a lot of the time we might be protecting the image of someone who has harmed us mm-hmm. or, you know, and I, I feel really conflicted about that because I do think our culture sort of pushes especially women to protect to be protective of people that they that should be protective of them but aren't, you know. Mm. And so I guess I just feel like generally speaking things would be better if we weren't so pressured to do that and if we and, – and also just better if we were all more honest about what we were really going through, you know, that that would be just generally yeah. speaking more helpful. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I guess I'm always in that line uh, between – Yeah, between how much and, and being genuine. Mm. But I – I think I I really I feel like it was a really brave choice or maybe it wasn't so much a choice but you know you write so honestly about your relationship with your sister and your relationship with your dad and what happened in the years after your sister's death and it's so easy when someone has died to romanticize everything about them and you kind of can forget or lessen the impact of the reality of who they were and their relationship to you and all of that. So I think part of the reason that your book is so special is that it is such a real account of family dynamics and real people, you know, you haven't sort of put those rose-coloured glasses on that we so often do when someone is no longer here. I think that truly that I... I don't believe that you have to be perfect to be lovable, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't believe that if I portrayed my father as I experienced him and he was imperfect both as a human and as a father mm-hmm. that he is less worthy of love mm-hmm. or any of those things, you know. So I don't in a sense feel like I've tarnished his memory or the like the memory of him or and the same with my sister I feel like if I portrayed them in a more rosy sort of light than I experienced them I feel like they would that would be doing them an injustice Mm -hmm. because it would be minimizing their complexity and minimizing their splendor Mm -hmm. as fully formed humans so I guess that you know that that didn't even really come into play that much for me because I and I also I also think that culturally like within my family unit my father was quite not obsessed but like really interested in authentic expression of self Mm. you know and that that was he valued that more highly than being polite or being any of those sort of things and also he wasn't particularly interested in how other people viewed him Mm -hmm. like in terms of it didn't define how he felt about himself so I just think that as part of my family culture too to like prioritize what we experienced as real over any kind of sort of idealised picture. There's actually a gorgeous scene that's just sprung to mind in in Staying where you describe your dad running through town in his women's Esprit T-shirt and, you know, not having any concept of how funny that might look or embarrassing that might be as a child. And that yeah, just kind absolutely. of came to mind as you were describing him you know, not really caring what people think and just doing him. I yeah, well, you're missing that he also had a giant ghetto blaster on his shoulder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because he was, I think he was getting it repaired, but, you know, yeah. it, that was a really funny image. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that was just particular to him or that was partly part of the sort of 1970s, 1980s sort of like freedom vibe that was happening up here Yeah. Um, or a bit of both. But yeah. Yeah, it was, 
And I mean, yeah. most, I think, you know, most teenagers probably find their parents embarrassing at some stage. Oh, absolutely. Um, even when they're not really yeah. embarrassing. So <laughs> maybe that's in play as well. But yeah, I just definitely didn't feel like it was my job to present either of those dead people in a rosier light than mm-hmm. they than I experienced them. It didn't even yeah. sort of come into what I was conceiving of what my job was, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I do think that my dad, in that, it's helpful because I think my dad would, I do believe that my dad would appreciate the honesty rather than not, you know. Yeah. And, I mean, what do you think he would make of you writing all of this up? I think he'd be so excited. Mm. You know, like I just I, I just think he, he would love it and he would love, even though um, obviously it doesn't always, the book doesn't always show his best moments as a parent at all but it, mm. I just think that he would love to have just such an honest account of what went on yeah well he was also an artist your dad and I wonder have you ever considered putting on an exhibition or sharing more of his works in his honor yeah I haven't thought about that a lot I I don't I'm so not part of the art world it's so hard for me to imagine <laughs> how that would work um, I do think that he's, yeah, I mean, his artwork was so interesting and it was also, um, I mean, quite similar in a sense to staying because he did a lot of, he did a lot of drawings that had a lot of text and they were sort of like visual diaries and they, mm. um, very personal kind of work and also really dark. Some of it's really, really dark. So yeah, it's hard for me to even imagine that anyone would be interested, but yeah, there's a lot of Well, it. I think anyone who's read staying would be extremely interested so you've 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 got a kind of ready-made audience if it's something that you ever (laughs) feel like pursuing I think some of the early stages when I was thinking about how the book might be laid out I I I was tempted to use a couple of his pictures on title title pages and stuff like that Mm. but the more that I got involved in it the more I thought I know this is going to sound sort of bad but I sort of I kind of felt like he's overshadowed my whole life in life and in death and then to actually insert his work which was personal to him into my work is like another way of allowing him to overshadow me Mm. you know and like the more it got closer to the time the less I wanted to do that you know yeah yeah Yeah. and this is so much your story that I think you're right it should have yeah. it should play as you have had it. Yeah, and so it, it just sort of became more and more apparent that, yeah, if I sort of allowed his work to a sort of window in, then it was, yeah, unbalancing it in some way. Yeah. So people might want to know what's next for you because I know certainly I am very excited to hear about some new writing that's been going on. Can you share a little <laughs> bit about what you're doing at the moment? So I guess... Um, it staying ended when I was about the the sort of main part of the text ends when I'm about twenty twenty six or something, mm-hmm. and so it kind of it became apparent after the process of sort of finishing that work and having it published that the way that trauma has impacted me into the rest of my life has been very, ah, you know, sort of specific and particular and um, ongoing, <laughs> and so yeah, I've been kind of. I've been looking at, at first, I, I, I was looking at the idea of investigating in a more kind of broad sense how that kind of trauma impacts on your capacity to form specifically kind of romantic attachment. Mm. So I guess attachment and how it's influenced by trauma is just an area that, I, that I'm really fascinated by. And so, yeah, I initially thought that I would 
I would sort of investigate that and maybe write something that was more like essays or something around that area. But what I have been doing, much to my like horror, is <laughs> much more <laughs> memoir-like expression of that problem. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I'm exploring how someone like me well, particularly me, goes about trying to relate to other people. Wow. Um, so it, in some ways it's a sequel to Staying, but it's not at all um, in the style of Staying. It's n- nowhere near as descriptive or as embedded in place or mm-hmm. anything like that. It's much more – in some ways it's sort of more – there's a lot more sort of thought process stuff going on. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's quite, at this stage, it's in quite an experimental stage. I mean, you know, I'm not sure what I'm doing, but um, <laughs> that's where I'm going. All right. Well, just promise me we don't have to wait 15 years for the next instalment. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. I, I feel like it's gonna, it may take me some years to be like comfortable enough to <laughs> imagine anyone ever reading it. Because at this point, it's really at the stage where I, yeah where the idea that anyone would ever read it fills me with such monumental horror that I'm, <laughs> yeah, unable to imagine the future. <laughs> well, I think like you were saying off air, we, we were having a chat and you were saying as soon as you start to imagine the reader when you're writing, then all creativity kind of goes out the window. So Yeah, that's how it works for me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So just forget that we're all sitting here. <laughs> No. So I like when I'm writing to imagine that there's no one else even in the world. Mm. Like so I might have had all these experiences but maybe the world has ended and I'm the final human living and this is the story I would tell if there was actually no one left in the world to hear it. Wow. <laughs> and that's my like safe space and that's, that's where I write from. And so for me... Obviously, having already published, that's much harder. That space is much harder to truly believe in. You know, like when I was writing the first works and I didn't actually imagine ever being published and I didn't actually know anyone that would read and I I was so disconnected from any kind of reading community that I really, truly believed that that's what I was doing, you know, Mm. that I was writing, that I was on a deserted island writing for the aliens that may arrive in you know, 50,000 million years. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, it, it is harder to believe that um, now. But I do like to still try and metaphorically at least create that space where there, it's just so free from judgment there's no one there. But, yeah, the tricky part happens when you get closer and closer to finishing the project and the illusion of that safe place starts to break apart. Um, mm-hmm. That becomes that becomes harder. Well, that, that's when your baby's getting out into the world, and publishers and editors and all the rest of it are getting their eyes and their hands on it and giving opinions. I I assume. Yeah, or even even lesser sort of steps. You know, I I find it really hard to even get to the step of like showing a friend mm. or you know, like as soon as you've broken that, as soon as I've broken that intimate sort of space that I've just created, that's just me and me, me yeah. speaking to me. Um, I feel really unsafe, mm-hmm. so I put that off for quite a long time. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of joke in my in my intimate friend group because when I first wrote the first draft of saying all that time ago, I didn't tell anybody that I was writing at all until mm-hmm. like many many sort of 
years down the track. So I had this fully formed thing, but I didn't, none of my friends knew that I was writing or that I was doing anything in that area. And one day I wanted to submit this thing I'd finally done to, I think it was to Varuna, to one of their things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I rang up one of my best friends and said, I want you to help me create a title page for this book I've written. And my friend was just like, just wait, rewind a sec. What? <laughs> and um, she always laughs, you know, because I just never said anything until it yeah. was so far done. <laughs> well, you've kind of just told the world now that there is something else happening. So we'll just all keep out of your way until it's done and then wait for the finished product to land <laughs> yeah, in our books. I need to, I need to, um, I need to um, maintain the illusion. That's it. In order to finish it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like you're in the perfect place to do that up in the rainforest and I've heard the occasional bird call in the background and it just sounds like paradise where you are and probably the perfect place to finish all your writing and at least pretend no one else is around. Well, you know, you're still battling with the main problem in that scenario, which is yourself. Well, true. The degree of resistance one can have even in the forest alone is incredible. Wow, yeah, the mind is a wonderful thing. Yeah, that's Well, Jessie, I want to thank you so much for all of your time today and sharing so much of your story and your process with us. And I'm just wondering where is the best place for people to get in touch with you if they would like to? My email is on my website um, Mm -hmm. but also through Facebook or Instagram or any of those okay things. well I, I'll, whatever so I'll put a link in the show notes to your website and perhaps your Instagram and Facebook so if people want to connect with you and share their own stories of reading your beautiful words and connecting on different levels then that's the place to do it yeah but just a heads up everyone don't don't get in touch for the next maybe year and a half so we can just get that next book out <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Jesse, thank you so much once again for your time and for joining us on the show today. No worries. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) 